0: listening to the fret files the guitar workshop podcast with eric da
1: This is, uh, the Guitar Workshop Podcast. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. It's a podcast about guitars in, uh, the repair aspect of things. Um, the technical aspect of guitars. Although, we do, uh, delve off into different things, you know. We'll talk about music or whatever else, but, um, yeah. I've, I've got a lot of really good questions, uh, for this episode, so, um... We'll dive right in here in a moment, but I really want to uh tell you we've got a killer interview this month uh with Doug Tolik, author of the uh the Dan Electro book Neptune Bound uh at the end of today's episode, so don't miss it, man. If you only listen to half of this episode, listen to the last half cuz I'm telling you that is if you're a Dan Electro freak like me, then you're you're not going to want to miss that. So stick around for that. Uh, I also want to tell you um, If you listen to the show If you enjoy the show you, uh, you really should participate This is an interactive podcast Where you ask the questions And then I give the answers And if uh, if you don't participate in the show Then well really there is no show So and I, I really want to thank the people That have uh, been participating But um, yeah Participate in the show Go to ericdaw.com Send me an email uh, I will use your, uh, comment or question as part of the show, or you can send me a voicemail by dialing 757, I can never remember my own number, 757-774-8482. That's it. And it's just a 24-hour voicemail, um, uh, hotline that, you know, I'm not gonna answer it, so you could call it. At three o'clock in the morning, when you see a UFO and uh, ask me what to do, or whatever, Ac- actually keep it to guitars. That would be best. Anyhow, you should also uh, you should find me on Facebook because I'm going to start posting um, like a-, a series of pictures for each show. So look for the fret files on Facebook because I'm going to do. Like an album of pictures for each show, because sometimes we talk about stuff that it's really hard to visualize if you don't know what we're talking about, or we'll be talking about particular guitars and, or particular things that I can post pictures of, so uh, it might be helpful. Or uh, it'll just add to the show. Come on. Find me on Facebook. It's, uh, I think it's just Facebook.com or Facebook forward slash fret files. I don't know. You You can find it. You know how to work the, the computer, right? Yeah. Very good. So, uh, let's dig right in. Take some letters. Here we go. We get
2: letters. We get stacks and stacks
1: of letters. Oh, yeah. I get stacks and stacks of letters. Here's one from Zach. Eric just listened to the latest episode. I did miss not getting one in May. Sorry. I did subscribe on iTunes a while back, and it was cool to get the email telling me there, they're telling me there was a new episode. Yeah, that's a good way to do it, you know. I mean, there's fretfiles.com. You can you can get the uh, the show that way. But if you go to iTunes, like they send you a, a notification when you when there's a new one, so that's kind of cool. Here is my question for the month. Please give us your take on reverse wound single coil pickup arrangements. More specifically, P90s in a Gibson 2-pickup guitar with separate volume controls. Okay. Can you have a reverse-wound pickup in the neck position, turn the neck pickup all the way down, toggle into the middle position, and achieve hum-canceling on the bridge pickup? No... If this works, will this adversely affect your tone? What is your take on hum-canceling stacked or split-coil type P90s, like the Gibson P100? I play a high-gain type amp, and hum can sometimes be an issue, but I love those P90s. What thoughts or experience can you share with us? Thanks again, my man, for all your insight and great advice. You're doing the Lord's work from Zach. I don't know if I'm doing the Lord's work, but hey, a lot of questions in there, so... Two P90s, separate volume controls. He's talking about hum canceling. So if your neck pickup is reverse-wound, so reverse in the opposite direction, you know, wound in the opposite direction, and that I'm talking about the coil of wire. So there's a there's a coil... You know how a pickup is made, right? So there's a coil of wire around a magnet. It's like 8,000 turns of really thin wire. Well, you can wind it either clockwise or counterclockwise. So if you have one of each, and then they're, they're magnetically opposite from each other, so one is north magnet facing up, and the other one is south pole facing up, then what you've got is two pickups that cancel out hum. And that's how you get that uh, hum-canceling sound. Strats do it in the middle positions, you know, with the two and four positions, and uh, uh, some guitars with some two-pickup single-coil guitars do it, some tellies do it. That's what a humbucker is, right? It's just two single-coil pickups wound opposite directions with reverse magnetic polarity, and what it does is it still picks up your string sound, but it cancels out all that extraneous noise that the pickup's are are getting. You know the problem with a pickup, the problem with an electric guitar pickup is that that's also the way that you make an antenna, right? So a coil of wire like that makes a really good antenna. So your guitar, the reason it hums is that it's picking up all the stray RF that's flying through the air, all the stray radio frequency signals that are flying through the air and everything electronic puts out radio frequency sig- signals. Not just radio stations. You know, your light bulbs and the, your laptop and your cell phone and the wires running through your house and the the uh, the uh, uh, transformer and your amplifier. They're all just putting out stray RF that's just... Uh, your guitar sees it, your pickups see it, and just turn it into hum. So, if you have hum-canceling pickups... That eliminates that. Anyway, yeah, I went off on a tangent there. So, uh. No, if you turn one of them, so if they've got separate volume controls and you turn one of them down, you'll notice. So put the switch in the middle position, and as, as soon as you turn one of them down, the hum comes back in. Reason being is that, uh, you've got, um, you you know, you're, you're taking one of the pickups out of the, uh, out of the circuit there. So, um, no, that does not work. They have to both be on in order to achieve hum canceling. And they also have to be... The, the closer that they're matched, the better that they will um, cancel out hum. So they both have to be... They both have to measure the same uh, resistance. So 6k ohms or 7k ohms or, you know, whatever the resistance is measuring. If they're the same... On both pickups, it'll cancel out the most amount of hum. So, if you take one of them out just a little bit, even, then the hum comes back. Uh, what else was your what was your other question? What is your take on hum-canceling stacked or split coil type P90s? Eh, I mean they don't sound the same. That's all. They're pretty good, but here's the deal: I love single coil pickups. Strat pickups, tele pickups, Dan Electro pickups, they hum, man. There's just no way around it. Well, Dan Electros don't hum as much because they're shielded really well. Uh, The old ones are. But no, Strat pickups, tele pickups, P90s, they hum. There's just no way around it. If you really love the tone, you put up with the hum. That's all there is to it. And you just make peace with that and move forward. That's my advice to you. Zach, thank you so much for participating in the podcast. This letter is from Dave. Dave says, Hi, Eric. Love the podcast. It makes my traffic-filled commute enjoyable. Oh, that's good. I enjoy your insight on repair, materials, hardware, etc. Also, great interview with Trevor Boone. Oh, yeah, that was a cool interview about his... uh, He's got a very rare lefty... Telecaster 52 Telecaster Dave continues I have a 99 GNL Blues Boy that I love I wondered if you might share some knowledge of what you know or think about g Also this last year I purchased a Riggio Tango Blackguard and I think Joe would be an awesome guest for your show Yeah I agree, Joe's a cool guy By the way, the Satellite 4 is my new streaming music at work Huh. Regards, Dave. Thanks, man. Yeah, the Satellite 4, that's my band. Well, it, it was. Uh, the band that I was in. That's the music that I use for all the breaks here on the show. And, uh, yeah, thanks. I'm glad you liked it. Also, he mentions Joe Riggio. Yeah, man, Joe is an awesome guy. He's a friend of mine. Kind of a kindred spirit, really. We do. We do... A lot of this exact same stuff, man. I think we're into the same stuff, and we both do repairs. We both make guitars. Um, I agree. He would be a good interview. He is uh, just down the road from me, too, really. He's down in Tacoma. I'm in Seattle. Uh, Also, he wanted to know about G&L guitars. Yeah, G&L guitars are great. Here's the deal. Leo Fender, uh, his health was suffering at some point, and he sold Fender. He got out of the business, sold Fender to CBS when he uh, felt like he had had enough. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, he got healthy again, or um, and he started up G&L with uh, uh, George Fullerton. So George and Leo. Anyway, um, and uh, they're great guitars. They really are. They're made, you know... They're probably closer to original fenders Than modern fenders are uh, They make good guitars They have, I mean, you know Their Asian made stuff is kind of You know, I mean, it's fine for the money Their American guitars, I really like them They're, they're beautiful They're really nice they, they tend to be a little um, th- The finishes are a little thick for me And they use really big fret wire They tend to uh, You know, not on every guitar But I don't know they they do. They make great guitars. I think that uh, uh, I, I have a lot of respect for them. Anyway, thanks for your question, Dave. This question is from Lincoln. Lincoln says, oh, wise one. Uh, I've got a question about Telebridge pickups. What's the tonal difference between flat and staggered pole pieces? And when, if ever, did Fender use the staggered ones? Hope you're doing well, Lincoln. Yeah. Well. Okay. Staggered in flat pole pieces um, on telebridge bridge pickups. That's about uh, string balance, is what that's about. You know, it's about relative volume uh, from one string to the next. So the strings follow the fingerboard radius, right? So they're they're curving in an arc. So flat pole piece pickups, the middle strings, the uh, D and the G, end up being farther away from the pickup than the outer strings are. Uh, and it causes volume discrepancies, and it makes the D especially quiet uh, compared to the low and, and high E strings. Uh, staggered pole piece pickups counteract this problem by using slightly longer Alnico pole pieces for the D and G so that they stick up just a little bit above the flat work of of the pickup, right? And uh, this makes the magnetic force of the the pickup more accurately follow that radius of the strings uh, and makes up for that uh, volume discrepancy. So, uh, and so he also asked, when did Fender use... Staggered ones. Well, Fender used flat pull pieces on the Tilly Bridge pickup from uh, the very beginning up until I think about late 1955 when they raised the D and G pull pieces, uh, you know, to remedy that. I guess they must have been getting complaints uh, that imbalance string response. So they switched back to flat pull pieces in the 80s. So it depends on what year the telly it is, but, you know, they, they used both. Uh, strat pull pieces were staggered from, from the get-go, uh, and then they changed to flat pull pieces in the 70s, like 74 or something, because everybody was using plain G-strings by then, and uh, that'll make a difference. So the plain G-string versus the wound G-string um, makes a big difference because that that plain G-string tends to be louder than the wound one. So the problem... Uh, with the wound G string, you know everybody was using wound G strings back in the fifties, and the G pole piece is really way too high on a on a vintage staggered telly uh, to properly balance with with a plain G string like modern players now use. you know So the remedy I mean, it worked at the time, but it really went too far by the time people started using plain G strings. So the solution that I've found, I mean, I like staggered pole pieces, but um, the vintage stagger is a little too severe for me. I just, when I make a pickup, I use a really slight stagger. I just barely raise the D and G pole pieces on my pickups that, that I make, and uh, it really seems to do the trick. So, Thanks for your question, Lincoln. Here's a question from Scott. Scott says... Hey Eric, I'm considering installing Grover Rotomatic tuners on my 2000 Les Paul Classic. I had a Les Paul Custom a few years ago that had Grovers, and I loved how precise the tuning was, as well as the weight, function, and feel. I'll admit it, I loved the look too. And yes, it might have something to do with the fact that Jimmy Page, Dwayne Allman, Peter Green, Mike Bloomfield, and many other Les Pauls, Les Paul players had them installed on their Les Pauls. Yeah. I was hoping I could get your professional opinion regarding Grover's versus Cluson's, and what I should be aware of if I decide to make the swap. From what little research I've done, I understand that larger holes will need to be reamed in the headstock, and once this is done, it's irreversible. It doesn't sound too difficult, but I still wouldn't be comfortable with doing it, given my limited experience with woodworking and thus would want you to do it for me. Oh, yeah. He's, he's local. Oh, I know this guy. This is Scott. my Yeah, my friend Scott. Uh, any thoughts or considerations that you think I should have while I contemplate this? What else is involved in installation? Well, um, I tell you, there are different diameters of tuners, and, and you're right. The old-style Klusons have a smaller diameter. If you're going to go to Grover's, those holes have to be reamed out to accept the new tuners, it is irreversible. I mean, you know, technically you could dowel the hole and redrill it for the smaller diameter, but once you've done, <laughs> once you've reamed it out, you can't put that wood back, man. It's like trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's just not going to happen. So, um, yeah, there, the headstock has to be modified. If it's a valuable guitar, I really don't advise anyone do that on a valuable guitar. Um, a lot of guys did that on their really valuable Les Pauls back in the 70s. But this is a, what, a 2000 Les Paul classic? I mean, yeah, if it, especially if it's a guitar that you plan on keeping um, and you like the Grovers, go for it, dude. Uh, he continues, one last question. If I do go through with this, I would like to find some used or vintage ones with some patina because I can't stand the look of shiny new nickel ones. If I can't afford or find any used ones, how difficult would it be to age new ones? Thanks for your insight. As always, Scott. Uh, it's very easy to age new ones if they're nickel. Not so if they're chrome, but if you have nickel ones, they're super easy to age. You know, the, the, the trick that I use is that I suspend them above vinegar in a sealed container. So some kind of sealed container, you put a little bit of vinegar in the bottom, you have the tuners up above the vinegar, you don't want them down in the vinegar, you just want them in the in the container with the air uh, and the vinegar fumes will actually age the, the nickel really nicely. And it's not a harsh chemical either, you know, it, it's, a lot of people when they go to age hardware, they'll use all kinds of super toxic chemicals. Man, I really don't recommend that cuz you can you can really hurt um the tuners doing that. You don't want to dip them in some nasty uh chemical. So yeah, just suspend them above vinegar um usually about a day is all it takes, but you know, you want to check on it every several hours or something. And uh if you leave them in there long enough, man, they'll turn green. So be careful of that. I mean, don't you know? Don't overdo it. But uh, just a nice little patina, and uh, then maybe you know you can you can scuff them up just a tiny bit with some Scotch Brite, and uh, looks really nice. So yeah, thanks for the question. Here's one from Brian. Brian says. Hi, Eric, I just found the podcast and have enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. I've been the store manager and repairman at a guitar shop in Denver for about 15 years, and from my experience there, I have a topic I'd like to suggest for your podcast. The, in parentheses, maybe, the myth of vintage guitars. Basically, how does modern production stack up against nostalgia Modern builders got to study and learn from all that came before them. Knowledge gets added, not lost. More is understood now about music instrument physics than 50 or 60 years ago, and we see this in the quantity of high-quality and consistent pickups available today, for example. Good wood is harder to get, however, so that plays a part, as does a need to produce quickly. So fast-drying finishes are now in the game. I've played some fabulous vintage instruments but some clunkers as well and I think that the hype we hear and I think that the hype we hear declares all older guitars to be amazing. Sometimes things get repeated long enough that they become true regardless of fact. Anyway, thanks for a great podcast. Looking forward to whatever comes next. From Brian. Great, Brian. Well, I have an idea. You should send me all your vintage guitars. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I mean, I get your point. I totally see your point, man. And here's the deal. You could say the same thing about, uh, the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper, right? I mean, it was recorded on a four-track. look how far recording has come. Look how far record production has come. And, uh, man, they're using that delicate old crappy tape. Boy, now they have computers, but that, uh, Really, simplify the process, I mean, you get where I'm going with this. look, yeah, they make good guitars now a, a lot of people do some 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 major companies don't <laughs> but yeah the like the boutique builders, I agree with you man they're they're great guitars there's um there's consistent quality the uh the knowledge and skill and craftsmanship is still there, but it's like uh you're forgetting one part of it, and that is that there's something that old guitars have, that new guitars, uh, modern guitars, don't have this, um, and that's the, the the whole antique aspect of it. You know, it's an antique market. I mean, imagine trying to convince a collector of early American furniture that furniture-making has come a long way, and they really, you know, should just get with the times and get furniture at ikea (laughs) i mean i know it's absurd but the point is um there are only so many 50s fenders and as long as the demand is there there they will always be expensive and they will always be highly regarded as excellent instruments are there better guitars today i don 't know I mean, look better is relative, so really it 's just your your point of view now, if you want to look at a guitar only as a tool like a hammer, then yeah, why would you why why would you just want to use an old hammer, especially if they 're so expensive um, but a guitar is more than a tool it's it's something that we're creating art with let 's not forget that, so there is an artistic aspect of this, and there's really an intangible um, aspect of vintage guitars, uh, that, um, a new one just doesn't have, man. I don't care, uh, how many ways you want to try to prove it to me. You know, if I play a new Dan Electro versus an old Dan Electro, there's a big difference, man. There's a big dang difference, and it's really just masonite and wood and paint, but there's a big difference. I mean, the same can be said for, um, custom shop if, if you play an old telly, I mean the magic is in there. I, I know maybe I'm being silly okay maybe I'm the superstitious one but uh, uh, I he, the, another another part of it is that um, there's materials that just aren't available anymore like Brazilian rosewood. Um, the A lot of the metals that they use in magnets back then are getting scarcer. And harder to find in good quality, so like the Alnico that they make today isn't the same as the Alnico that they made back in the fifties. It's just not. and there I really think that there's a sound difference, man. And also look at uh I mean, just there's just a vibe that there's just a vibe that the old guitars had, and they're really um, they're you know they're more handmade. the craftsmanship was higher back then. Uh, to a certain extent just and I'm talking about um, in a factory setting, right? I mean, I guarantee you a, a, the modern like the modern just off the off the assembly line fenders don't have near the craftsmanship uh, involved in making them. Now, you know, maybe the uh, custom shop does and maybe some of the boutique builders do, but back in the 50s A factory-made instrument was a custom-made instrument, pretty much. So, yeah, I get your point, and I see what you're saying, but, uh, yeah, it's going to be hard to convince people (laughs) that uh, vintage guitars are just uh, a myth. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for the question, man. Uh, I did get a call this month, so uh, only one, but, hey, one's better than none. So here we go. Let's play the, uh, the telephone call.
3: Eric this is Scott Minnick first of all i wanted to say that i love your show and what you're doing i think it's such a great idea and um is a really valuable resource for uh for me as a musician as, as a player maybe not so much a tech but um still extremely entertaining um and a, and a and a good source of information um which brings me to to my question for you i recently purchased a um uh May in japan fender 1950 flu that you recently did a setup on for me and uh before i get to my question one one quick comment i know in your previous episode you talked about the merits of the bone nut um i had you install a bone nut and uh i have to say the the um difference was distinct and apparent um significantly and uh, uh, uh quite a noticeable improvement in, in the guitar just to believe a The strings feel second in the tone as well. So, um, yeah, that's a comment on what you previously mentioned. Um, Thank you for the setup, too. The guitar plays and sounds amazingly. Question for you Uh, This is my second Fender made in Japan um, guitar. The other one I own is a 1952 reissue. This is a a 1986 Crafted in Japan. I was wondering if you could comment on the difference between Crafted in Japan and made in japan i've done a little bit of research and heard some information um some people say that made in japan is b1997 and crafted in japan was post 1997 basically marketing 101 crafted in japan sounds better i've also heard that um crafted in japan um, regardless of year manufacture was um was uh made for japan's market and um the made in japan made for export um that's the made in japan being somewhat less desirable and i'm sure that's questionable as well i i wanted to to hear what your take is, um, your take is japan. japan um
1: yeah, unfortunately, his phone was really fading there, fading in and out. But I think we got the question. That was a, a good question. So what is the difference between when we're talking about Japanese fenders, some of them say made in Japan and some of them say crafted in Japan? And it's an excellent question because nobody seems to have a straight answer. And uh, I have wondered this myself and I never really been too sure, but I think I found uh, an answer for you, and it also kind of explains why nobody really has a straight answer, and the answer is that it's really kind of convoluted. Um, this is according to uh, someone who wrote this on Wikipedia, so, you know, right there, it, it might not be, <laughs> just because it's on Wikipedia, it might not be true, but um, this is what it says on Wikipedia it says, according to a Fender representative, it was it was in the Fender Japan contract that if there was a change of manufacturer from Fuji Gen Gaki, that's the factory, uh, to another guitar factory, then the logo would be changed from M I J Made in Japan to C I J Crafted in Japan. So the first C I J Fenders start around nineteen ninety two, but most of the Japanese Fenders up until ninety six ninety seven are still M.I.J. fenders made in Japan. So in 91, 92, uh, Fujigen, the factory, they were expanding their factory operations by establishing uh, Fujigen Hiruka Incorporated to be able to take on additional um, neck gibson type uh, contracts uh, like Orville by Gibson. and uh, So Dainagaki, another factory, took over some of the making of the Japanese Fender models, which resulted in a CIJ logo being used on some Japanese Fenders instead of an MIJ logo. CIJ is mostly used on Fenders from 96, 97 until recently due to Tokai and Dinagaki taking over the Fender Japan manufacturing contract from Fujijan Gaki in 96, 97. So if you're not confused after that, explanation then i don't know what's wrong with you no so apparently if it says uh, made in japan and it's uh uh pre 91 92 right then it's made by Fujigen Gaki. that so it has to do with the factory and if it says crafted in japan then it's not Fujigen, and apparently that's the difference. That's what it, that's what it says on Wikipedia, and gee whiz, I'm just going to believe anything that they tell me. So, I don't know. If anybody has a better answer to that, um, why don't you send me an email or, or, or drop me a call? I would love to get more information about it. Um, they've also got a, it says timeline here. Timeline, 1982, Fender Japan starts production with Fuji Gen Gaki having the manufacturing contract. The Made in Japan logo is used. 1984, CBS sells Fender to its current owners, and while waiting for a new USA factory to begin production, Fender Japan models and leftover USA stock were mostly sold in the USA for a few years. 92, the first crafted-in-Japan models start appearing due to the Dynagaki taking over some of the manufacturing, while Fuji Gen Gaki were expanding their operations. 96, 97, crafted-in-Japan is used instead of made-in-Japan, because Tokai and Dainagaki take over the manufacturing contract from Fujigen Gaki. So, apparently, it just has to do with um, the factory that it was produced at. So, there you go. Anyway, uh, that, I'm more confused than I was before. <laughs> but thanks for the call. <laughs> you should uh, participate in my podcast. Like I said, give me a call. 757 774 8482. Or go to ericdaw.com, click the contact link, send me an email. I will use your question or comment as part of the show. Stick around. We'll be right back with some news. Joining me now from an abandoned telephone booth in South Detroit is Red with the Guitar News. Hi, Red. How you doing?
4: Doing good. How are you?
1: I'm doing great.
4: Yeah, well, this month we have a mystery on our hands. Oh, yeah? Yeah, this is quite intriguing. It is the mystery of a Green Bay, Wisconsin family heirloom. Uh, Its current heir, Peter Saldana, is... Scratching his head over its origin, this is a 1957 Gibson Super 400 mm-hmm. PES. Okay. A gorgeous hollow body guitar with all gold hardware and, uh, it's got some very interesting features to it. It has a beautiful, almost haunting neck inlay of a gold rose all up the neck, which is an aftermarket addition. This neck has been replaced. Oh, yeah. And up on the neck, it all uh, on the headstock. It has a gorgeous rose with a little bee. Um. Anyways, this guitar is one of the largest guitars Gibson ever produced. The body is 18 inches wide. And it's worth anywhere from five dollars to $15,000, depending on where its origins lie.
1: Hmm. And so the mystery is, where did this guitar come from and why is it such a custom-made, one-off instrument?
4: Yes, the, oh, the current owner, Peter uh, Saldana, he has a few questions. He wants to know where it came from. He wants to know who put this neck on it and why why did they install this aftermarket neck on it cuz everybody knows the 400 CES is a is a perfect guitar right out of the gate and uh he he just wants to know where it came from it's been in his family since the 60s mm-hmm. And he's just curious and always has been, and now he's sort of reaching out to the web and the internet for people to sort of maybe chime in on where they think it might come from. And after looking at it, to me, this guitar is screaming country.
2: Yeah, right. It's
4: screaming stage. Nashville. I have personally worked on only one 400 CES in my lifetime. I've just put strings on it and tuned it is all. But uh, I know a stage guitar when I see one. right? And those country guys, they really love to flash them up way back then. And I'm thinking Merle Travis. Yeah. Merle Uh, Travis in 1959 had a Gibson Super 400 made for him special,
2: mm-hmm.
4: and that's just two years off of the production of this guitar hmm. in 1957. His was custom-made in 1959, but that is the only place I have ever seen the exact same inlay.
1: Hmm. It, has, so, it has the same inlay as, as Merle Travis's.
4: huh? Exactly.
1: Yeah, I agree with you though. It's definitely it, it I mean it screams Nashville, it screams uh nudie suit, you know. Uh mm-hmm. and uh it's uh it's a it is a lot like the Merle Travis one. That's cool.
4: All right. I'm thinking because, uh, you know, this is the this is the exact make and model that uh Scotty Moore played oh, yeah. to back up Elvis.
2: Hmm, Cool.
4: You know. And I think, you know, Scotty Moore is still alive and kicking, um, and I don't think he would mind getting a phone call or an email from Peter and maybe discussing it. Send You know, if Peter shot Scotty Moore an email, a photo of this guitar, I think they could get down to the mystery. I really think they could.
1: There's got to be somebody somewhere that knows about that guitar and that that can tell Peter, you know, where it came from, who it was made for. Got to be somebody.
4: Oh, there, there is, there is, and, and, and I know a lot of these people that, you know, that know about these guitars might be already passed away, but I think there are some people alive that would know, and I think it is uh, valuable to track down the mystery and oh, finally yeah. solve it.
1: Here's a little trivia for you. So that's, that guitar is called a Super 400 CES. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the CES stands for?
4: Ah, you stumped me! Uh, I do not.
1: So C is means cutaway. So it has a, it has a cutaway. And ES Mm. means electric Spanish.
4: Ah. So anytime you see yeah,
1: anytime you see ES in a Gibson model number, like, I mean, almost all of their archtop guitars say you know ES three thirty five ES or whatever. um, That's electric Spanish.
4: Uh, Ah, see.
1: Anyway. um... Yeah. What else do you have for us, Red?
4: Well, other than that mystery, there is quite a sad story going on up in Oregon with a luthier up there. He's getting the big squeeze from Korg, big uh, keyboard company, synthesizer company Korg. Jack Charles, and I hope I don't butcher his name here, Musdorfer, he makes guitars with love, by hand, one by one and these are not just any guitars but the one he fell in love with as a sixth grade kid in the 60s the vox phantom Mm -hmm. teardrop yeah and you know most kids go out and just buy the guitar they they love and drool over but musdorfer makes his own and he has done so for 21 years even after being a guitar player rocker on his own right um this dedicated luthier now finds himself in a tricky battle threatening his love and livelihood vox is now owned by korg and korg has determined that musdorfer is violating the trademark of the classic phantom teardrop by producing them at his class organ company phantom guitar works hmm. now i've read this whole story from top to bottom and it's complicated there's this there's that but to me this just sounds like a case of the big bad company stepping on the little guy to get him out of the way of their big their bottom line
1: yeah yeah you know and and this happens a lot with um small guitar makers it's really hard to come up with any kind of guitar that that doesn't borrow from some other previously made guitar um but in his case i I, I get it. He really is, I mean, pretty much just copying uh, uh, their their shape and design. But the problem is that Vox never uh, trademarked their, uh, their design and their shape. A lot like, you know, Fender never trademarked the Strat body shape or the Tele body shape. And so it's only years and years later that these companies are going after these little guys and claiming that they have the rights to something that they never established rights for. So, I think that it's really just a, a case of uh, these companies are going after these little guys now claiming uh, claiming the rights to something that they never trademarked in the first place.
4: Yeah, exactly. I, he jumped on the trademark because it was in the public domain. Yeah, and yeah. this is something he loves. He does it with care. He's made these guitars for John Mellencamp Band, among others, and he's been doing it for 21 years. Why, you know, stomp on his toes now? Uh, it seems like, you know, Korg tried to borrow his talent uh, at a NAM conference. They asked to borrow his guitars for their amp display and their amp booth and then turn around and go, oh, yeah, okay, but we don't like you anymore because you're using our trademark shape and name, and so now we're going to go after you. Yes. Um, and it just seemed I'm on the fence because it is, you know, I don't know. It's a tough call. But to me, I'm going to lean with the luthier, of course, the guy who's making these guitars by hand. I mean, there's nothing beats a a nice electric made with love by hand i've met a couple of these guys that do this that make guitars by hand one at a time and that's all they do and these are very special very easy to play guitars they're they're just gems in their own right yeah so i think that the uh That the guitar gods may be smiling on Jack with the initial judgment by Eastern District New York Magistrate Judge Gary R. Brown. He's leaning in the Luthier's favor by, uh, protecting his phantom trademark and essentially, you know, in layman's terms, he's calling BS on Korg's claims to the trademark. So it could be, it could end up in good news.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I and I side with the judge on that. I think that's great because, you know, the law is pretty clear on this and it it states that um in order to be a trademark infringement, there has to be uh it has to be confusingly similar. You know, the the uh the whole point of the law is to make sure that customers aren't confused that they're buying a Vox or if they're buying one made by uh, this guy in, in Oregon. And to me, it's clear that's, that there's no confusion there because the guitars he's making don't say Vox on them. They're obviously not a Vox guitar.
4: Right, and that that's a valid point. That's what I would, I would say. If he was putting Vox on those guitars, that's one thing. But he's not. He's got his own company. Phantom was not officially under any trademark, it was, you know, it was open season on Phantom when he grabbed it, and he mm-hmm. did, he did grab it, and he has his own trademark on that now, and it's been all this time, why didn't they go after him years ago? Why are they yeah. doing it now?
1: Right, right. So, yeah, you know, they're just a, they're a little late jumping on that. I mean, if, they've, if he's been doing this for 20 plus years, and they're just getting around to to bothering him about it, I think that that says a lot about the validity of their case.
4: I think you're right. Yeah. And I have to agree. Um, he's been doing this for too many years, and why stamp out one, one guy's livelihood and the love of his life? I mean, why, why do that? I yeah. mean, let the guy be in business. Let him make his guitars.
1: Yeah, he's not hurting Vox's business in any way.
4: No, I don't think so. He's selling his guitars for $1,000 at best each, and I can't see how that could possibly cut into Korg, who, I mean, everybody knows Korg. Yeah. Have you ever been to a concert without seeing the name Korg on stage somewhere? No. No. So, yeah, I just...
1: Well, that's actually really cheap for a handmade guitar, too, $1,000.
4: Yeah, it is, it is. You know, I just, I can't see what damage... Jack Charles is possibly doing to Korg's bottom line, and I just think it's it's dirty on on Korg's part for uh, for even going after yeah.
1: him. Well, it'll it'll be interesting to see how that how that ends up for sure.
4: Yeah, it's still in litigation as uh, as far as I can tell.
1: Well, what else you got for us, Red?
4: Well, I have an interesting uh, little thing I just want to throw in. There's this uh, band out of Canada who recorded an album in 1987 that became a cult metal classic. And it's now going to be released September 26th of this year. It is officially going to be released. Death Dealer, Journey Into Fear is going to come out into the light of day. And uh, it is crammed full of screaming vocals, uh this thing that some kids nowadays might not know of it's called a guitar solo <laughs> you'll find lots of those on this album <laughs> and uh and i would just recommend looking for it to hear some really great um metal from back in the day wow look for that so it's like a, a like uh, a lost talk- recording what's that
1: so it's like a lost recording huh
4: it is a lost recording. I mean, there are bootlegs out there, but they are, they are very highly sought after and hard to find. We're talking about a few cassettes hmm. that made it into circulation in 1987 that have been spread around here and there. I mean, if you're really lucky, you might be able to find a torrent of it somewhere on the internet, but now it, they're actually going to release it on LP. And CD via Cult Metal Classics Records this late September, so I would look for that. It's 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 a gem from way back when, and um, it's gonna be it's gonna be quite interesting to hear it and see the response of people to this hidden album coming out of the shadows. Cool. Yeah, and we do have some birthdays for July. We got Mississippi John Hurt birthday July 3rd yeah one of my favorites yeah Mike Bloomfield is uh, having a birthday this month not sure what day sorry about that but that's all right (laughs) uh, Charlie Christian
1: oh yeah jazz guitar
4: 29
1: jazz guitar great Charlie Christian
4: Mm mm-hmm and buddy guy Ending out the month, July 30th is having a birthday. So, cool. look out, look into those guys. They are uh, some pioneers in blues that oh, yeah. should never be forgotten.
2: Yeah, nice.
4: Lastly, I just want to throw in there that Judas Priest Redeemer of Souls tour begins October 1st in Rochester, New York. So, oh. look out for that.
1: All right, cool. Well, great. Well, thank you so much once again, and as always, for joining me on the Fret Files podcast.
4: Thank you, and we'll see you next month.
1: Right on. Thank you, Red. I'd like to invite you to check out the Fret Files on Facebook. Uh, I will post more links um, on the Facebook Facebook page about the news stories we talked about, so you can see uh, pictures of the guitar we talked about. You can see links to the stories. You can I'll, I'll post... All of that there, and uh, it's a good way to get a little bit more information. Don't go away. I'm going to be right back, take a quick break, be right back with uh, an interview with Mr. Doug Tulloch, the author of Neptune Bound, the Dan Electro Resource and Price Guide. Phone is the author of Neptune Bound, the ultimate Dan Electro guitar guide. Mr. Doug Tolek. Doug, how you doing? Hello, Eric. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Really appreciate you joining me on the show here. Glad to be here. Yeah, I as I was just telling you uh, as we were getting ready for this interview here, I'm I'm a big fan, man. I've uh, I'm a big fan of Dan Electro's, and uh, so of course I've found you and your book here. Uh, it's it's really it must have been a massive undertaking to put this together. It's a huge, beautiful book.
0: Thank you. And uh if you only knew and uh, I don't even know how I got it done to be honest with you.
1: Well, I hope it's really paying off for you, man. It's a uh, it's 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 something to be proud of for sure. Now, what is what got you interested in in Dan Electros of all things? Uh, what's your history as a as a Dan Electro collector?
0: Well, um Really, what got me started was just buying the first one, and uh man, it happened to be you know late nineteen seventies. Uh, I was you know in my late teens, and uh, there was a local barber shop that sold guitars, awesome. new guitars, and so you could get
1: your you could get your haircut and buy a guitar.
0: Exactly. Wow! You could buy a guitar, and you put a Cutaway in your uh in your Epiphone. uh <laughs> broadway if you want it
2: yeah <laughs> well
0: wow. so uh so yeah i bought a uh, i bought a late 50s uh single pickup double cut dano for 80 dollars. and at the time i had a, a a fender bronco and a fender twin and uh and the bronco i had a humbucker in the bridge and a three-way and a five-way switch maybe uh but man tiny neck tiny frets you know a yeah. struggle to uh, to get some uh, tone out of out of that rig and uh honestly the dano was like a godsend it was uh, for 80 bucks yeah. it had a wide neck and it had big frets and it had a flat radius yeah and it you knew how to dial in the amp it had a great sound yeah um, so uh, that was it, man and soon after you know uh, I just for the money and for the for the value for as a you know someone that liked to play uh, it was uh, it fit the bill very really? well
1: no, and, I, yeah uh,
0: yeah, that's pretty much how I, I got hooked.
1: And it's it's interesting looking at Dan Electros if you if you view it through the prism of what else was available at the time they're very very unique uh, maybe not so by today's standards but by uh in the 50s they were super unique
0: Yeah and, and in retrospect they were a lot more unique and innovative than than anybody really uh, uh gave credit for yeah. for a long time uh yeah. you know I mean, if you read some of the right. early books that came out in the 80s about neck tilt, it was Leo Fender's name getting mentioned. Right. Not, you know, Nathan Daniel. Yeah.
1: yeah. And Nat Daniel, he was shielding guitars way before anybody else even thought to do that.
0: Well, yeah. And that came out of him shielding uh, radios in the Jeep, in the army Jeeps, yeah. you know.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. He was really an an electrical uh, genius. Uh, you know, he was doing series uh pickup wiring before anybody else as far as I'm aware of. Uh, may, well, maybe not. Uh it was about the same time that uh uh Gibson came out with the humbucker, I suppose, but this was two right. single coils wired in series that and totally shielded. <laughs> Pretty unique.
0: Yeah. For sure, that's definitely one of uh, one of their great things that they did. So, yeah.
1: when people talk about Leo Fender, they always talk about um, what a uh, not not shrewd, but very uh, money conscious and and uh, uh, I don't, I can't think of the word, but practical, um, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and when I think of Nat Daniel, Nat Daniel was really kind of a kindred spirit to Leo Fender. They they really had a similar mindsets, even though they went different directions nat daniel um took uh materials that most guitar builders would not even think of using like masonite lipstick tubes. He was really really creative in in how he made these guitars
0: yeah no i agree it's uh it's extremely interesting what 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 put a smile on my face when i when I came across some info in and they uh, they use the the grindings from the aluminum nuts uh to speckle the paint finish on those uh, amp in case models really yeah oh that's so, awesome you know waste not want not yeah no, don't let anything in a way uh yeah. the the driveway lining the front of the uh, neptune factory uh nap uh planted uh poplar trees down there and that's the same wood he used for the necks
1: yeah, yeah yeah that's amazing and uh no truss rods right they they just have well they're they have rods but they're not adjustable two steel beams non-adjustable, right
0: non-adjustable uh i-beam steel uh you know his feeling was uh there's no reason for the neck to move if you you know lay a channel in there of steel and uh and, uh, you know, 90% of the Danos I come across are excellent yeah. playing instruments. Uh, and if they need a little uh, twerk, that's fine. But uh,
1: Yeah, you rarely see a Dan Electro with a warped neck, rarely.
0: Um, the, the, mostly I see the uh, the baritone, the, the, the 50s uh, long neck baritones. Yeah, sure. Uh, they got a little they got a little dive in there, but you know, it's a baritone, you can get a nice uh TikTok sound out of there and uh yeah, you can yeah. you can work around it. Uh
1: you mentioned poplar, you know, there has always been a debate that I've run into with guys that, who go back and forth about whether the the frame in the body is pine or poplar. And uh I think that you can solve this mystery for us once and for all. What do you think?
0: Well, I've seen mostly pine frames. Yeah. yeah. And uh, But I've seen some poplar stuff. Uh, I had a, I think it was a 54 single pickup, uh, one of the maroon. Uh, and uh, But I've never seen any uh, any experimental wood used um, yeah. other than what was production. Mm-hmm. But I've seen some funny odd guitars, you
1: know. Yeah, there, there's a lot of them in the book. It's really an amazing resource for um, just amazing Dan Electro oddities, things that I'll never see in person. So it's it's cool to see. Um, there's there's one picture in here of a uh, uh, an experimental guitar without the masonite top or back on it, so you can clearly see the frame and exactly how it's laid out.
0: Right. I think that was uh my my pal Jim Cleveland's uh, experimental classical guitar. Yeah,
1: right, with a a built-in tube amp.
0: Right. Very yeah. strange. Um Jim Cleveland was one of the uh the guys in in the 80s along with uh Jim Washburn and uh Yeah, I don't want to leave people out, but uh you know, it started getting me interested in dan electros reading that guitar world interview with uh Steve Morris on the cover, you know, the Dan Electro story, and uh, uh, Steve Sos, Jim Washburn did that, Uh, you know, my buddy Skip from City Lights Music in uh, in New York City, Long Clothes, but uh, had a a very interesting uh, uh, newsletter he'd send out every stock list every six or eight weeks uh, back, you know, before the internet, and uh, it was a lot of fun, you know.
1: Yeah, those days were, they, they were interesting days back then, before the internet, trying to find gear, looking through the newspaper and through want ads, and, and uh, uh, <laughs> it was really, it was, the the search and the hunt was a lot more fun, really, back then.
0: Yeah, not, and it, it, you know, it's hotter now, maybe not as much fun as it used to be, yeah. but...
1: It's easier uh, now. Very
0: competitive yeah. uh, right now, but it always has been to an extent. But look, when I, when I signed up on eBay, I, I remember one of my first buys was a refinished 53 gold top in the original case for $850. Wow, now. that's awesome. So, uh, you know, but look, it's all, it, this continues to be deals today. Yeah, and, uh, especially in Dan Electro, it's a good time to buy Dan Electro's right now.
1: I agree, uh, man. They're really an undervalued guitar. Um, you know, the the three things that I uh, that I see that that uh, affect prices on any vintage guitar are, are rarity, condition, and demand. And uh, you know, there are rare Dan Electro's. I just see that if the demand were just to tick up a notch, we, we we could really see these prices go up fast.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I tried to set a precedent with my price list in the book. Some people thought it might, you know, date the the publication, but I didn't care because I just wanted it down what I thought at the time. Yeah, and uh, and I think they've held up well. And, you know, I went to a lot of trouble to to list every single production model instrument ever made. That's why I didn't mess with the amps in the book, because the amps is another three hairs.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: So, oh, that's all, you know, and that's it's a totally different subject in my opinion.
1: Um, uh it's so, yeah. it's been a few years since since you published the book. How do you feel that the prices have have held up? Do you feel that they're still pretty accurate?
0: Um sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Uh I think l- lately I, I've sold some pieces that I felt were a lot stronger than ultimately they proved to be. Yeah. Uh, but you know that's that's the truth. That's that's uh, you can't get any uh, more accurate than what any anybody's willing to pay at any given time for something.
1: Yeah, uh, that's the bottom line.
0: But, you know, I'm biased because I think they're they're incredible, and especially you know triple pickup stuff and you know prototype stuff and and just you know uh, the, to me uh they're just uh, great playing great sounding great looking instruments and and i got hooked because they were cheap and they were great yeah and yeah but i love all guitars you know i've, I've yeah. had all kinds of guitars i've had them all
1: yeah you know? no i'm the uh, same way
0: i couldn't sock away Slabboard strats and you know gold top Les Pauls, but I could sock away Dan electros.
1: Yeah, it's a more approachable I guitar. I yeah. had a
0: vintage shop and I bought and sold and traded and and uh, fed my obsession with Dan electros that way, and uh, you know uh, passed on a lot of great guitars. For, yeah, in, in lieu of buying another rare Dano. Yeah, know.
1: yeah. Uh, you know, I've 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 looked at at uh, what guitars cost in the fifties, and if you adjust for inflation, and this is why I think some of the some of the Dan Electros are such a bargain. Uh, some of these guitars haven't even kept up with inflation. Yeah, and that's amazing to me. You know, I mean, you could buy uh, what was a Dano in the in the fifties. You know, maybe a hundred. Hundred twenty-five yeah, dollars.
0: Pretty much, ninety-nine bucks, hundred twenty bucks. You
1: know. And if you look at, say, uh, a Telecaster or a Stratocaster, you could buy one of those for around two hundred. And right. look at where they're at now.
2: Sure.
1: Uh, the prices just haven't kept up the way the other American manufacturers have. But they're, Dan Electro gets lumped into this kind of second tier of American manufacturers with Harmony and Kay, Um and I don't know, that to me, they're kind of in between the Fenders and Gibsons and the Harmonies and Ks.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think they're, they're uh, you know, there's, there's in line uh, with throwing Gretsch with Fender and Gibson as throwing Dan Electro with Fender and Gibson.
1: Yeah, right. now, to me, the, the craftsmanship is better than the 50s Gretsches. I've seen plenty of Gretches that are just completely falling apart.
0: Yeah, I've had a, had a few. And uh, most of them are most the,
1: of the bindings crumbling. The frets are bad. The bindings falling off. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious uh, what, how you how you feel about Jerry Jones.
0: Um, Jerry Jones, great, awesome guitars. Uh, I got a handwritten letter from Jerry before he even opens with pictures of his production that he was his prototypes that he was building. Yeah. Uh and I've been, you know, I haven't been in touch with him for a long time. Um, when we did that first book, um, because Vinny uh, was supposed to be uh supposed to Vinny was supposed to have his own section Vin- in that Vincent
1: Bell you're talking about?
0: Right. And uh and I felt it was dishonorable to Vinny if uh because Jerry Jones wanted to advertise in the book. Oh, yeah. And uh, and my partner at that time in the book uh approached me with that idea because we were accepting we had a couple of advertising pages to help pay off the book. And um so some vintage dealers were in there and uh he mm-hmm. wanted to be one. I said, "Look, you know, Vinny feels that um you know, he wasn't duly addressed with that whole thing. And I don't think it'd be appropriate to just have an advertiser in there take precedence over one of the major guys yeah. in the development of some of their coolest stuff ever. Yeah. So I just felt like we had to make a decision and the decision was very easy for me. Mm. Vinny's in and we're very sorry, Jerry Jones, but we can't have your ad in the book because yeah. That's why.
1: Well, I, and, think, uh, I, I so, think that was the right way so,
0: yeah, to do it. I, think, I, I don't think, I don't think uh, uh, my partner in the book, uh, you know, uh, kind of forwarded that information to Jerry in a professional way and rather in a personal way. And so I have never spoken to Jerry again. I don't know if he, you know, how upset he was about that. But at the time, uh, there was talk that, you know, he wasn't happy about it. Yeah. But that's... That's why, and, uh, you know, I have to stand by that yeah. myself. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, the new book um, really is full of information from Vincent Bell, and it's just amazing, fascinating to read what a character he is.
0: Amazing. Um, I'm hoping to speak to him probably uh, in a couple hours um, but yeah, he's uh, he's a great person, nice man, and uh, very creative. And um, he was uh, he was you know he was very generous and uh, loved that I was doing it, and loved that he was uh, getting some acknowledgement. And uh, I, you know, I was very happy and, and yeah. honored to give it to him. Yeah.
1: Uh, so the Dan Electro name now is owned by a company called the Avets Corporation.
0: Yeah, I I actually think the uh, the Dan Electro name is owned by Anthony Mark who uh has given uh Evitts Corporation uh permission to uh mm. manufacture uh product with the name.
1: Oh, interesting. Did you have to get permission uh from them to use the name Dan Electro in this book? No. It's it's fair if I game. I did.
0: Uh, they let me slide, and I never heard a word about it. So. Yeah,
1: I just don't know how it works.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I think you know it's a history book, and that's the name. And you know, I, I would guess if you look at the forest uh, instead of the trees, that it's, it's a good thing for them. You know, sure, to have a book out there.
1: I wish that Yvette's would make a. Uh, a guitar that lived up to the Dan I hate to disparage them cuz it's cool that they're still making Dan electros but it would really be cool if they did something more like what Jerry Jones was doing and and maybe have a line of american made guitars that were made like the old ones were I I think people would pay for them
0: I I I agree and I have uh, I've discussed it uh over the course probably of the last 5 years with uh with uh, uh Steve Rittinger from, uh, from Evitz, who, uh, who, who owns Evitts And, uh, you know, I wanted to do a, a uh, you know, a, a, maybe a signature model, a Neptune bound model, uh, and I've actually done some design consultation for them. Cool. And, uh, with the, uh, the psychedelic guitars, uh, I came up with the specs, uh, some of the specs for that. And the uh, Jimmy Page models, uh, maybe even the uh, the '67s, I believe. Oh yeah, I, yeah. So yeah, so I've been talking with uh, with Evans and Steve uh, for a while, and and still hanging in there, hoping that we can collaborate on something good. Yeah. So I wonder that myself, and yeah. I have actually been reaching out to him lately. And uh, well, especially,
1: especially now that Jerry Jones is out of business, it really seems like there's a void there to fill.
0: Yeah, no, I'd love to do something, and mm-hmm. uh, and I've thrown it out there. So I hope yeah. it uh, sticks and comes back. Yeah, and, uh, we can do something cool. Uh, well, in the
1: meantime, you know, I, I'm uh, I interviewed Jason Lawler a few episodes back, and uh, I was asking him about. Dan Electro Are you familiar with Jason Lawler the pickup maker? Yeah. yeah. Did
0: he mention to you that I tried to get him to make me 100 sets of pickups
1: for my <laughs> No, <house>? he didn't. <laughs> but yeah. I asked him I asked him about making lipstick tubes because I wish he would. Um, and uh, he said no, I'm going to stay out of that one. They're they're too hard to make. And so I wanted to ask you in the meantime, who do you think makes the best modern replacement lipstick tube pickup?
0: Wow! Just buy a used original Dan out Yeah,
1: that that's be- I'm with yeah. you. <laughs> that's what I've been doing. Uh,
0: no, when I mentioned uh, a few years back, I, I approached Evitts and I said, "Look, I want to order because they hadn't. Uh, you know, though we've discussed it, they hadn't." Uh, they hadn't said, yes, let's do a a Neptune Bound model or some sort of signature model or something. And uh, so I I called them up. I said, look, what if I want to order 100 guitars myself to my own specs? And uh, that's when I called Jason. I actually sent Jason. I cut out. I had an old Silvertone down in the basement. I actually routed out the pickup route for him out of the top of the guitar and sent it to him.
1: (laughs) As a template? As a
0: template, yeah, uh, and we we talked and it was great for about two minutes, and then uh, and then the next thing I knew, I had to talk to a business manager first, and and it got lost, and I wasn't, I just didn't want to go that route. I just wanted me and him to do it, and it got it got corporate really quick, yeah. so.
1: Yeah. Well, I make pickups uh, as well, and uh, I agree with Jason. They are difficult to make, but there's got to be somebody willing to pick up the mantle and make some good Dan Electro pickups. Apparently, um, there's no bobbin on that pickup. It's just wire wrapped right directly around the magnet, and then uh, stuffed inside the lipstick tube. Is there? Yeah.
0: In the book, I took I took a pickup apart and took a yeah. picture of. It. Yeah, it's great. Um. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. It, you know, original pickups are like a hundred bucks now. So, right. you know, which if is completely make reasonable. Good new replica, it's going to be a hundred bucks.
1: Yeah, and that's what I've so, been doing. You know, I I makes like a hybrid between a Telecaster and a Dan Electro, and that's what I've been using is either vintage pickups or Jerry Jones pickups when I can get them because I I feel like they sound pretty good as well.
0: Yeah, well, you know, even the WD pickups I used to get, I used to like, but it yeah. just didn't sound like Dano pickups. You yeah, know? nothing, nothing does really.
1: That lipstick tube that is used in that pickup is that still available from the original manufacturer? Who who made that lipstick tube?
0: Yeah, that was he sourced that. Probably, I, I think it was some cosmetics place in New York City, and who knows, I never, I never uh, looked, looked around for him. Uh, hmm. I think some people may have and failed, so I'm guessing probably not, but who knows?
1: You yeah, know? yeah, interesting. Well, where can we find you uh, on the internet?
0: Uh, on the internet, I'm trying to consolidate right now, so I've got a Facebook page, uh, danelectro.guru, and also a, uh, a website, danelectro.guru, and I'm in the process of uh, assembling what I hope to be the best uh, online resource for Danelectro stuff, because uh, there's a few people uh, doing a few things that uh, are just insincere out there, Dan Electro wise and I've been a little lax getting it all together in one spot, so, uh, that's what I'm doing now, so I'm looking forward to having the biggest uh, online Dan Electro site in the world.
1: Great. Sure. Well, that's. Uh, I really encourage people to go check that out, find you on Facebook, and uh, participate in uh, the continuation of the Dan Electro story with Mr. Doug Tulek. And, and again, I really appreciate you joining me on, on the show today.
0: Yeah, let's do uh, part two next year. <laughs>
1: Sounds good, Doug. Cool, man. Thanks thank you, thank you so much.
0: All right, my friend.
1: Well, that wraps it up for this month's edition of the Fret Files. Thanks so much for listening. I want to thank Doug again for joining me here today. If you don't have Doug's book, man, I I cannot uh, speak highly enough of it. You should really go check it out. You should you should get yourself a copy. You can also check out. Uh, Doug's other websites there, he's got a Facebook page up and then there's the danelectro.guru which is coming soon so check that out thanks to Red for joining me with Guitar News as always, and thanks to you for listening and participating in this podcast if you want to participate in this podcast you you really should, go to ericdaw.com click the contact link, send me your comment or question and i'll use it as part of the show uh there's also a phone number that you can dial and i forget it it's uh 757-774-8482 there you go so call that number just it's a uh it's a 24-hour voicemail hotline you can just leave me a message there and uh i will use your voicemail as part of the show Thanks to Michael Van Deven for giving us a home on the net over there at UFOship.com. There's a couple other podcasts on there you should check out if you're into podcasts over there at UFOship.com. Check out those other podcasts if you feel like it. Uh, thanks so much for listening. I'll see you uh, see you next month.